to the Exposing Mold podcast, where Eric Johnson, Alicia Swami, and I dive into all things toxic mold. Today, we are discussing an introduction to the Eric Johnson effect. Eric has been a long observer in toxic mold and the behavior of toxic mold based on his experience in the Army as a bioweapons specialist. Eric's theory is that there could be things in the environment that are making microbes behave in a more aggressive way. And the foundation of that idea is that mold historically does not and has not created the problems that we're seeing today in modern times. Never before in history do we have anything recorded where people are running and fleeing from their homes because of something growing inside of it. I know this is kind of a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around because mold was in the Bible and so it states that there's a historical context, but that context that stated, Eric has pointed out is mostly in relation to clothing and the references that are in relation to housing, they do not equal what we are seeing today in modern times for health and buildings. Eric, would you care to speak more on this? Yeah, the um, outbreak at Lake Tahoe in 1985 was widely publicized. The um, news of it scared the entire country into refusing to come to Lake Tahoe, and the tourism industry was suffering badly. So this brought a great deal of scrutiny on our situation. The um, investigation by the Center for Disease Control made it a real target for interest all over the world. So people everywhere were analyzing what was going on, every clue they could possibly scrutinize, and the clue of the clusters being in certain buildings completely escaped everyone's notice. There were no researchers from anywhere in the world who seemed capable of identifying the sick building syndrome as being a problem. This kind of convinced me that it really was unknown, uh, just as Doctors, neighbors, friends, everybody else was in total disbelief that uh, we could point at sick buildings and claim that this was a driving force in our illness. The behavior of the researchers in failing to address this or recognize it in any way was perfectly consistent with this being unknown. The um, doctors behaved in a really bad, competitive, greedy kind of way. They all came to Lake Tahoe obsessed with their own theories, determined to inflict whatever pet theory they had on our situation. And they didn't look at our clues. They didn't accept them. They didn't uh, want to discuss them. And when our own doctors finally did acknowledge that the clusters occurred in sick buildings, there was no follow-up on it. Even they didn't discuss it. It was like, oh yeah, that's that's nice. Uh, you got sick in a sick building. It's probably your own personal problem or something to do with the virus. But no attention to how the sick building syndrome was really emerging at that time. So given the strange behavior of doctors, their refusal to follow up clues, the way they fought with us about anything that we uh, asked them to look into, I wondered if there was some alternate way to confirm just how unknown this was. Seemed to me that if people had encountered this, this toxic mold, the sick building phenomenon, the people who wouldn't have a vested interest in suppressing it would be construction workers who clean up after a flood, plumbers who have to get close proximity to the leaking pipes where mold colonies would be, people like that. So I started asking plumbers, contractors, if they remembered any incident where people got sick in proximity to this black toxic mold. And most of them said no. They, they said if anybody were going to get sick from toxic mold, they would because they come face to face with it all the time and they had no recollection of it. So it, it was consistent with uh, the behavior of doctors and their failure to recognize this. But thanks to my earlier experience in the army, 
and seeing how under certain conditions, toxic mold could make groups of people sick. And the way I had observed this sporadically in the Bay Area in 1980, in the very early 1980s, it seemed to be emerging. And I was certain that doctors would eventually see more of this at some point. So when they did, I wanted to leave a, a trail of clues so that they could come back, connect this with the chronic fatigue syndrome, and we could determine if this was really an emerging problem or it was simply something that we were getting better at noticing. When the um, chronic fatigue syndrome definition was published, I anticipated lots of researchers would come to look at our clues and I waited for them to arrive and none did. Nobody ever came. Even though books, documentaries, newspapers, all kinds of um, media reports were released about our illness, there was no interest in it. Everybody created their own definition of chronic fatigue syndrome based loosely on whatever rumor they had heard. They didn't look at our evidence and they never heard about the uh, clusters of sick building syndrome. So this clue completely slipped out of the public eye and disappeared until the publication of the book Osler's Web in 1996. When right there on the flyleaf, the reasons for the CDC investigation were clearly listed. This was throughout the book. It was the subject of the first several chapters, why the Center for Disease Control was called to investigate clusters of sick teachers and sick buildings and in a casino. And this being so well described right there on the very the front of the book, I thought surely now somebody will read about the sick building syndrome and come back and ask if anything uh, was known about it. And to my amazement, no advocates no chronic fatigue syndrome patients, nobody came to ask. So I started reaching out to advocacy groups, telling them about it. And that's when I found out that they didn't want to know and they didn't want to hear that the sick building phenomenon had anything to do with their illness. The uh, Center for Disease Control was starting to take notice of other sick building incidents in the early 1990s. Specifically, the most notable, the um, Dora Dearborn Ruth Etzel investigation of pulmonary hemorrhage in infants in Cleveland. A whole slew of infants came down with bleeding lung disease simultaneously. And Ruth Etzel made the association that these houses typically had high levels of stachybotrys. This stood out as a common denominator. What This was the same mold that we had identified in the clusters of sick building that started the chronic fatigue syndrome that baffled the Center for Disease Control into creating the, the syndrome. And this was strong enough evidence to warrant further investigation. So I started uh, contacting mold groups, mold experts, thinking that they would be surely interested in health effects of mold. And since they had wondered about this new chronic fatigue syndrome, they would care to find out if their paradigm, the toxicity of this mold, was connected with any discrete illness entity, which it is by virtue of the documented presence of stachybotrys in the clusters of the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort. I'd hope that the um, mold experts would respond with greater integrity and honesty than the chronic fatigue syndrome community had. And for a while, it almost appeared that they might because they discussed it for a while until it emerged that our evidence was actually quite conclusive. The circumstantial evidence of teachers directly next to clusters of stachybotrys was incredibly difficult to deny, and they weren't looking for definitive clues. This conflicted with their desire to be mold experts. If this were publicized, then this would make chronic fatigue syndrome the center of investigation and detract from their own efforts, so they decided to suppress it. I uh, carried on telling 
I carried on telling um, mold groups, mold experts, about the stachybotrys phenomenon from about 1997 until 2001 when I finally made contact with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. And he'd written a book called Desperation, published in 2001, that described the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort as a biotoxin incident. So I found a group that of um, about 160 doctors, many of them prominent Lyme and chronic fatigue syndrome specialists, told my story. And of them, Dr. Shoemaker was the only one who responded. So over the next uh, several years, I told my story to Dr. Shoemaker, and he published it in his 2005 book, Mold Warriors. The title of the book alone, Mold at Ground Zero for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, was self-explanatory. It explains that there was a clue. It was at ground zero for the chronic fatigue syndrome. That alone was enough to connect these clues and get further research into this. And there again, not a single researcher of any kind responded. In your opinion, since researchers were not looking at mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome in Tahoe, they weren't looking at the mold that was found in the pulmonary hemorrhage cases. What is the reason why they are not looking into these instances, why they are not finding mold as a problem? Well, at first, it seemed that they were truly ignorant, that they honestly felt that there wasn't sufficient evidence to make this connection. It was the same situation as I had wondered about with the doctors failing to respond to our clues. And I started looking around at the other professions, the people who were dealing with mold, to find out if they had any awareness of it, and they didn't. So it seemed reasonable for a couple of years that the uh, Center for Disease Control and our experts would manifest this kind of doubt. But as the phenomenon emerged, more and more people described the same thing over and over again and pointed at the very same mold. The level of evidence quickly came to a point where the association was too clear. I mean, how many times can you deny it after independently people all over the world pointed the very same mold? I thought that um, by the time about 10 more people described the mold phenomenon, to chronic fatigue syndrome researchers, they would remember what we had told them and come back. And that's when I found that they were actually never interested in solving chronic fatigue syndrome and didn't want to put the clues together and became quite antagonistic towards following up on this clue. So it really moved into a sociological phenomenon where these experts, despite their claims of scientific objectivity, are actually all on a massive power trip. They're all looking to um, increase their own base, steer research toward their own theories, control the funding, influence others by manipulative omission of evidence. And this quickly became more of a sociological investigation than a scientific one. And I thought, I'm in a position to perform one of the greatest tests of medical integrity in history. We can find out if researchers will respond objectively to clues when it's handed to them. And so far, they've been a complete failure. It seems to me and from my understanding that it would be a big a huge financial burden for insurance companies so that's why it's kind of, there's a pushback because i think they understand what the problem is and they don't want to recognize it because people are going to be suing left and right so there there is a financial aspect to it as well yeah the insurance companies absolutely played a role in the suppression of this evidence they have a very vested interest in making sure that it stays ambiguous, in doubt, nothing can be proven. Testing for toxic mold means nothing. You can fix it with bleach, get rid of the problem. So yeah, their vested interest is undeniable. However, if you look at the timeline of how the insurance company behaved, they didn't have exclusions to mold illness prior to the 1990s. 
to the late 1990s. It wasn't until the Melinda Ballard case really made national headlines that they began frantically writing these exclusions. So if the insurance companies had known about toxic mold, I guarantee there would have been exclusions in the policies right from the start. So you can actually tell how quickly this phenomenon has come upon us simply by looking at the timeline of how insurance companies have behaved. But as tempting as it is to blame the vested interests of the Center for Disease Control and insurance companies in suppressing this phenomenon, the behavior of doctors and researchers in refusing to look predated that by 10 years. In other words, as soon as they were handed clues of a toxic agent in the sick buildings, they immediately launched into battle to deny research. Why did they do that? If you've got teachers pointing specifically at a mold colony or asking the Center for Disease Control directly to examine the filters in a room full of sick people, why refuse to look at that point? So I've been unable to uh, find the, the logic in their behavior. I'm still looking. Now, getting around to my um, reasoning for why the toxic mold got worse, you know, even if the mold got worse suddenly, that still isn't sufficient reason for a researcher to not to deny it. In fact, that's more reason. If something changes dramatically, then this is likely to be a, a cause, a, a factor in so many people getting sick. And the factor that we found at Lake Tahoe was cloud seeding. The main thing that seemed to be different about our environment wasn't pesticides, it wasn't um, agricultural runoff, nothing had changed, no new chemicals were introduced, but we were being drenched with cloud seeding by the ski resorts who were anxious to extract every flake of snow from every cloud that was passing overhead. So this, in essence, the cloud seeding was the very first theory for the Lake Tahoe mystery illness. Now that Eric is on this topic, he actually was so thorough with his investigation that he developed a map of the entire Lake Tahoe area. And he went through each instance that could quite possibly be the reason why people were getting sick. I mean, he's got a whole list from one to 11. And he, again, went through that, did his own investigation, asked around, and has come to this conclusion that the nanoparticles that were being used for cloud seeding were an issue. Yeah, the um, environmental changes during this time were so broad that it encompassed a, a large geographic area all across North Lake Tahoe. And this roughly corresponded to the map of the official cloud seeding that was being conducted by the Desert Research Institute. So if you've got a whole lot of illness in the exact same place, where ultrafine particles are being applied, it seemed natural to at least examine the possibility. And many of us protested the cloud seeding at this time, and we were worried about it. And the experts assured us that the particles were indeed toxic, that they would be so widely dispersed and diluted that they wouldn't cause harm to anybody. And this didn't seem reasonable to us because if the particles are caught in streams and channeled down to narrow brooks, you know, small creeks. Couldn't they affect the wildlife? Couldn't they affect the, um, the algae? The uh, people in favor of the cloud seeding at the time told us that, yes, certainly if you put silver particles, the silver iodide, in a goldfish bowl, the goldfish will die, but that somehow we shouldn't worry about it. Well, Tahoe being such a pristine place, we wanted to preserve it, and we didn't really approve of this environmental tampering. But since we could find no peer-reviewed evidence that showed actual harm from cloud seeding, the best we could do was complain that they were proceeding without an environmental impact statement, and that, if anything, the overproduction of snow 
might lead to avalanches and financial hardship from trying to clear all this excess snow, and they could be held criminally liable for any damages. That was pretty lame because there really can't be too much snow in Lake Tahoe. We love this stuff. That's white gold to us. That's what draws the skiers. But it was the best we could do to try to get attention to the cloud seeding issue. So this was the basis of why I suspected that nanoparticles, or ultrafine particles as they were called back then, might have been the driving force. And as these were explained to us, they would act as nucleators, as a locus for condensation of the clouds and precipitate whatever was in the clouds onto us. But along with that would come the um, acid rain, the VOCs, the uh, pesticides from the San Joaquin Valley upwind of us. Essentially anything that was in the uh, air could possibly adhere to the nanoparticle and rain down on us in increased concentration. Of course, they refuse to discuss this possibility at all. But if there's an increased incidence of people complaining of multiple chemical sensitivity, who's to say they can rule this out? Now, when I found the um, same kind of illness was emerging elsewhere, even without the application of the silver iodide particles, it seemed to like disagree with the emergence of a mystery illness at Lake Tahoe. However, if one considers the ultrafine particle concentrations are increasing all over the world and looks for a pattern that might result from the increased concentrations, what might that look like? Wouldn't it look like an increased incidence of sick building syndrome and microbes acting up elsewhere? And this is exactly the pattern that I found. This caused me such confidence that we were going to see more cases of mold acting up, more cases of sick building syndrome, that when I was asked to serve as a prototype for this new syndrome, my first words were, I have an inexorably increasing reactivity to mold that grows progressively worse no matter where I live. And I suggest that researchers look into it before there are millions of us. One story that keeps playing in my mind as I'm hearing you talk about this is the frogs and the crayfish at Lake Tahoe. Can you, can you just reference that story and, and give your hypothesis what you think happened? Yeah, we were having an increased algal bloom during the Tahoe Mystery Malady. The uh, inhabitants were extremely concerned about this. And just as was mentioned with this map, everybody was looking for reasons why the algae would be acting so strangely. And the uh, most popular theory was increased runoff from cesspools and sewage system. And yet, even though this was known to be a problem, the surge in algal activity in 1984 was so dramatic that it reached crisis proportion. People were trying to go for a swim and to get off the beach, they were having to go through this green ooze. And Lake Tahoe was never known to have seen anything like that before. Still, it didn't seem to be that toxic. I mean, people weren't going down to the beach and getting sick. So as dramatic as it was, and as alarming as it was, it didn't appear to be a source for uh, any kind of illness. Until one day, I uh, was having difficulty breathing, felt a burning sensation, was unable to catch my breath, and I went down to the beach for some fresh air. And since there's an onshore breeze, I anticipated that the air on the beach would be as fresh as anywhere I could go. And to my amazement, I felt terrible down there. I mean, I felt horribly sick. And I began looking for clues on the, um, on the beach, and there were increased numbers of crayfish dying on the beach. Now, a few days after this, my stepfather called me, said, you've got to come take a look at this. And we went down to the beach and the beach was entirely covered with dead crayfish. Millions of, so many that you could not 
step on the beach without stepping on dead crayfish. You literally could not walk between them. It was a mass die-off like nothing we'd ever seen before. There had been a bit of a storm, not much of one, nothing like the massive storms with huge four to six foot waves crashing on the beach, just a minor one. And yet people leaped for the easy explanation that there had been a storm and it had thrown the crayfish up on the beach. And I thought, that doesn't make sense. Not millions of them. This, this doesn't fit the facts. So I started looking at the crayfish and saw that they left trails in the sand. Every trail was leading away from the water. They were all facing away from the water when they died. These crayfish were trying to escape the lake. Clearly a sign of toxicity. And I always wondered if perhaps the cloud seeding had altered the silt, the microbes in the soil in some way, that it altered the biota somehow that a fairly vigorous species of cyanobacteria, a toxin producer, had emerged, dominated the uh, other weaker strains, unleashed some sort of hidden potential like toxic metals that had been accumulating in the silt. And this flurry of toxicity had been too much for the crayfish to take and caused this event. And possibly this might be why so many people all the way across North Lake Tahoe were now unable to control viral infections. We're getting fungal infections. We're getting parvovirus, cytomegalovirus, reactivated Epstein-Barr virus, and having immunological problems. And if any researcher had ever come, I would have told them about this. But as I've said so many times, not a single one ever came. Another environmental issue that you had noticed were the trees. Yeah, at the same time, we were going through a minor drought and all the trees appeared to be ill as well. Uh, we had stands of trees just suddenly dying for no apparent reason. They weren't really old trees. They were infected with beetles. And yet, why would certain stands of trees become so highly affected at one time. It was a mystery to us. So this seemed to go along with the other environmental effects that we were observing. And one of the culprits for the tree die-off was salt on the road. So Tahoe, among the other culprits, I didn't mention the salt on the road, even though that was strongly suspected. And Tahoe actually stopped using salt on the road because of the 1985 mystery illness. This changed a lot of people's behaviors, a lot of things changed as a result of this. They uh, thought, well, okay, we'll stop using salt and that will help. And I pointed to the trees far above the road. You know, well, what about the trees up there? The salt didn't get up there. Why are they distressed? So they simply leaped to another culprit like the beetles. And you could go up there and see that the beetle activity was not excessive. And these trees had plenty of moisture. There was no drought there. And I noticed that the tops of these trees had bent over about 90 degrees. About the top three feet of the trees had become weak and rubbery. Some of the young trees, three or four inches diameter, were actually bending over and laying down at the slightest snow level. They had no strength at all. So what could cause a weakness such that all the trees would become weak and, and unable to you know, stand up to any snow load. Now, when trees die off, normally they, they become brittle. The tops will become so brittle that they'll snap off, but they don't bend over that way. Well, I read many years later that there is a theory that certain pesticides can deprive, such as glyphosate, can deprive roots of vital nutrients. And even though you have plenty of water, that this loss of nutrients will make the trees weak in this manner. And the other theory is that nanoparticles will block the root pores and cause this exact phenomenon. But I've been unable to substantiate that. It just remains a theory. Well, you kind of been the number one <laughs> researcher 
into all of this. I remember you telling us the story and saying, you know, had I known that no one was going to come and check this out and look into it, you know, I, I would have been a hundred times more thorough. I would have, you know, t- taken photos of everything. I would have done this, but I did the best that I could hoping that these researchers, these people that were interested in, in the phenomenon that was happening at Tahoe, that they would take over and do their further investigations like they should have. But as you have mentioned, they completely dropped the ball on this. Yeah, they more than dropped the ball. They manifest actual hostility toward any clues, any evidence. And it's not just the mold clues. One of the uh, major factors that scared the Center for Disease Control into uh, responding, the Holmes Committee, into creating this new syndrome was the recent discovery of a new virus, HHV6-alpha. And about uh, half of the Lake Tahoe mystery illness patients had this new virus previously described only in HIV patients. This scared the Center for Disease Control so badly that this was actually the reason why Dr. Carlos Lopez, head of the Herpes Virus and Viral Exanthems Division of the CDC, convened the Holmes Committee. It was determined whether this HHV6 virus was indeed a new syndrome unto itself. And yet no researchers mentioned the HHV6 virus for years, 20 years after that, this was completely forgotten. So it wasn't just the toxic mold. It wasn't just the frog die-off, the crayfish die-off, the sick trees. They fought against every clue we presented. So like I say, this turned into a sociological investigation. And it's part of why I stuck with it, because I was so amazed that science could not just fail, but the scientific, the researcher mind is set out to make science fail. And if we want to make any progress, I think we'd better find out why they are doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem is, is that it seems like there were so many things going on during that time. They didn't know what to focus on. But the common denominator and what you've been discussing and what has been happening is the cloud seeding, the shooting of the nanoparticles into the clouds to um, obtain more snow because that is a big economic draw for Tahoe is people going up there to ski and, and conduct recreational activities. Could you talk more about this effect, your theory as to why you feel nanoparticles are the main culprit for these viruses and the toxic mold and the dying of the crayfish, the algae blooms and such? Basic Science 101 is to start at the beginning. And Dr. Paul Cheney called the Center for Disease Control specifically for a cluster of sick teachers all in one room. And at the very least, it seems logical that they could start with that, at least try to explain why a bunch of people all in one room could get sick. Well, since my attention was already called to something atmospheric, enhancing the power of the microbes, I looked for clues that uh, the direct introduction, the concentration of something atmospheric could be making these sick buildings worse. And as it turns out, these buildings were flat. They had flat roofs. And where the leaks had occurred were in the places where water would have been concentrated, channeled into one specific mold colony, and the other mold, known to be present in these buildings, did not act any worse, did not catch anybody's attention, but it was the mold colonies with access to the fresh water during this atmospheric event that all acted up. So we've got a correlation between something in the air, 
microbes acting worse. So there seems to be enough evidence to show that the direct stimulation or the influence of something atmospheric was causing the creation of a supertoxin. Now, as far as the overall effects, the sporadic cases, I asked a lot of people if they had had encounters with a, a toxic mold or with mold at some point, and many, many of them had a story for me. But is it possible that these nanoparticles, the ultrafine particles, could have a low-level effect, such a broad subliminal effect that it could go unnoticed by doctors? Well, I read that nanoparticles are indistinguishable to the immune system from a virus. To all intents and purposes, when the immune system sees a nanoparticle, it thinks it's a virus. So this could have diverted immune surveillance away from the present threat of the actual infection of HHV6, the EBV, the cytomegalovirus, the pyrovirus, and the other intracellular viral infections that we, all these people were complaining about. Instead of looking at the big picture and seeing where some outside influence had lowered immune function, each and every doctor fixated on the virus that they found and tried to invent ways in which that virus had become more pathogenic or blame the patient for their personal inability to maintain immune function by poor lifestyle, cigarettes, drugs, alcohol, anything they had done wrong and completely ignore the fact that many of these people, these patients that they were blaming, were patients where they were teachers, they were nutritionists, and even in many cases, doctors and nurses. You've been throwing around this theory for a while. And what I've been noticing is that these researchers, these doctors keep telling you, you have no proof, you have no proof. Well, doctors, researchers, look into my eyes, we are providing you with connections to something that is extremely concerning. You are the professional. So we kindly ask that you make these connections and you start researching it. Because at the end of the day, we are not researchers. We are mold injured, concerned citizens of the United States of America that are seeing massive uprising in mold illness. And if there's something going on that is hurting a lot of people, I think it's your responsibility to look into it, to study it, to allocate funds to it. Because if you don't, then we will. And that's what we plan on doing. So again, we're providing you with the opportunity to look into it. If not, again, we are gonna try our best to do that research so that way you cannot tell us it no longer exists. So. That's my call to you. In terms of the responsibility of researchers to look into this, their proposal that we have no evidence is really a power trip because this is a syndrome. The idea behind a syndrome is because we have a provisional hypothesis based on observation to which doctors are supposed to provide the answer, not come battle with us to say that you can't prove our case to them. This is ridiculous. It shows that they have a basic misunderstanding the scientific method and why syndromes are created. Yeah, thank you for that, Eric. That was a lot of great information. Thank you all for listening. We really appreciate you tuning in to learn more about what we feel is going on in the environment, learning more about Eric Johnson's effect. On our next episode, we will go ahead and discuss more about nanoparticles and the mechanisms that are driving them to interact with microbes in the environment and toxic mold. So again, thank you for listening. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe to our content. We are literally on every 
podcast application out there. I made sure to put us on everything. So you literally have no excuse why you cannot listen, okay? So you can go ahead, check out our YouTube, check out our website. Again, check out those uh, different podcasting applications. We also have the transcripts in English and in Spanish. If anyone wants it translated in any other language, please let me know. I'd be more than happy to do that for you. We want to get this information out there because we feel like it's extremely critical, especially during these very interesting times that we're dealing with. So again, please go ahead, check out our Patreon and GoFundMe pages because we got a lot of work to do and we would like to raise as much money as we can to go ahead and proceed with that work. Thank you again and we'll see you next time.